I'm Peter Wall. And I'm Jennifer Carnegie. Welcome to the Amicus Leadership Podcast. On each episode, we'll be speaking to inspiring leaders about the ups and downs of their careers. As well as doing what we do best, using our years of leadership experience in both the military and commercial business to get leaders to the top of their game. You can listen to each new podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So subscribe now to make sure you don't miss any of our conversations. Okay, let's get going. So today's uh, Amicus Leadership Podcast, we're privileged to have Alex Lupis, uh, someone we've met, a professional colleague of ours who we've met in uh, on our journey, who hails from Australia. He's had a 20-plus year career in financial services in the United States and Asia. Uh, he's now residing in Hong Kong. Might tell us a bit about Hong Kong in lockdown as we go through this, Alex. He's working as the global head of client engagement in Hong Kong. Alex, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Peter. It's great to uh, have this chance to talk. Uh, we've got to know you through some of the projects we've done together on uh, developing leaders in your organisation. And uh, I wonder if you'd just sort of kick us off by talking a bit about your leadership journey and why you think leadership's important. Sure. Well, as I said, thanks for having me. I'm certainly not a finished product, so by no means. I can talk about the journey, but I'm not a polished finished product. Um, and I'm uh, humbled to be in your company, Peter, and yours too, Jennifer. So um, I'll tell you a bit about how I came here um, and came to be in a leadership role. Maybe that'll help and explain a bit of the background. Um, growing up, hailing from Sydney originally, um, I had some experience growing up um, in a leadership role. Um, I was raised as a violinist. Um, which took a lot of my a lot of time, a lot of effort um, growing up. And when I was in year eight, which would be probably around 14 years old, um, I was given the responsibility of being the leader of the orchestra, um, which was a bit daunting when um, you're in year eight and bossing around the older kids in year 12 um, when you're about half their size and didn't have any of the uh, the street cred that your older kids definitely did. So I, uh, I was introduced at, a, at an early age to some form of leadership there. Um, and certainly, uh, I think I was there on the basis of, I'd say, um, hopefully this come, does, comes across the right way, but on talent, but, uh, but not, my, not really on leadership ability, but I guess I picked some up along the way um, and really didn't have a leadership role while I was in the US. Um, I worked for f- uh, five, years on the buy, well, five years on the buy side um, in Boston and then uh, five years in New York uh, on the sell side and didn't have um, really leadership roles there until I came to Hong Kong. And right away at uh, HSBC, shortly after joining, almost 11 years ago, was given responsibility for a small team um, looking after corporate access in uh, Asian equities. And that team um, has grown over time um, and responsibilities with it. So today um, I have, I guess, three global roles or two teams. Um, one is to run the client engagement group, and that involves our global investor access products. So all our uh, about 20 people across multiple different de- destinations in the world from Shenzhen to Bangalore to Dubai to Sao Paulo, New York, London as well, um, and also a client management team around the world and in Bangalore, and also uh, a co-heading ESG sales, which is new to me, um, which is really a virtual team using more influence, uh, which is something we can talk about, uh, more than just um, responsibility, management responsibility. 
So I guess it's evolved over time and picking things up as I go. Um, I've had an interest in um, leading people and just managing people and, you know, the human part of the business that was what makes it our business great. Um, you meet some great people along the journey. So I guess that's where we where we intersected as well and got introduced, Peter, was just in, in that sense through interesting people. Fantastic. I'm really interested in the fact that you are a violinist. Do you still play? Absolutely not. It was too big a part of my life. Um, nowadays, my car- my um, musical tendencies lean towards um, karaoke and a bit of amateur DJing, um, really with my kids, um, but and tragic to 80s rock. So that's about the limit today. Are you going to um, ask your, or encourage your kids to play a musical instrument? Good question. Um, if they want to. So they have a love for music, um, but I'm trying to foster the love above the discipline. Um, I will say I learned a lot through music. Um, it was a, I was, I was tone deaf when I started and I did the Suzuki method and from practicing and the discipline of it, I learned that you, through hard work, you can get almost anything, almost anywhere. I'm sure there's a talent for that extra little part, but really hard work can get you a lot of places. And when I was in year 11, I did my, um, associate music diploma in performance and teaching, and I was practicing three hours a day on top of being in the orchestra and string quartets and things. And it was just too much of my life. So I had to sacrifice other things um, to do that. So it really, for my kids, it'll depend on what they want to do. I'll expose them to it, you know, through they've had some piano lessons, they've had some singing, some drama, um, but it's up to them as to what they want to do. I'm, I will encourage them and push them a bit if they need it. Um, the, the teams, you said you're looking after three teams at the moment. How Can you tell us a bit about the makeup of the team? How many people? Where are the people from? I can imagine in, in Hong Kong it's pretty multicultural. It is. Um, so it's diverse in terms of gender, um, somewhat diverse in terms of age, definitely diverse in terms of location. Um, so from Dubai to Sao Paulo deals with different issues, I think, um, as well as in Asia. Um, we have a few people of, um, in China. We have people here. Um, so all across Asia, I'd say the challenge, what, what has been good about COVID is that we're all in the same boat. Now, we've been through lockdown in different stages, but it's been something to unite us. Uh, and Zoom, I would travel quite a lot before um, to visit the centres and to go. Uh, we host conferences, which are very, uh, we're in a connection business, really. That's what we do. We make connections. And now we've had to do it instead of doing it face to face, which I certainly enjoy. We've been doing it over Zoom, which is really a great leveller. Um, so it takes a bit more effort, takes a bit more getting used to, um, and it doesn't get us all the way there. But it, it is, um, you know, it is serviceable to a point. I wouldn't like to say we'd do it forever, but for now. So do you, do you think when we get back to some sense of normality and, and people are able to travel again, do you think that your travel schedule will be as it was before? No chance. I no. think we will be a, a percentage of it. Um, because this has actually worked to some degree. I think we can't go with zero, which is we've gone from one extreme to the other, uh, where we've probably travelled maybe, I don't want to say too much, but we've travelled where perhaps Zoom could fill that void. Um, you know, the fact that my five-year-old twins can Zoom very well is testament to the fact that we can probably get by with some level of this. Um, I think we will go to, there are some benefits to it, to the virtual environment, the ability to record, like we're all sitting in different locations now, the ability to replay, there's a lot of benefits to it. So I don't think it goes, it will never resume completely, at least I think, I could be wrong, but we'll we'll be some hybrid model going forward. And that goes for all our events as well. We'll have some sort of hybrid model going forward. 
So just pick, picking up the leadership theme from your sort of almost shock immersion as a youngster. You could call it that. the violin. I mean, it's not unusual for people in business to be thrust into leadership roles by dint of their talent rather than because of a proven ability as leaders. In fact, I would say the majority outside uh, sort of organizations like the one I came from, like the army, where you're selected and trained for that, almost regardless of any or despite any other lack of skill, you're in the you're in the place of having to absolutely learn it on the job. And you had a sort of shock immersion, um, as, as you said. Um, how does it feel? And what do you do about it? And what advice would you give people who find themselves in that situation, as many do? Great question. And I've come across this a lot, just like when I was in the orchestra and being promoted, I guess, given the role because of talent. Same things ha happens. You know, best trader sometimes used to get promoted. The best salesperson used to get promoted to a leadership role. I think the first thing I'd say is we have to recognize and be realistic that we are evolving. And there's not really, very few people I think are born with an innate leadership ability. They have the ability to connect or they're good communicators, but being a leader is multifaceted um, and you have to work at it and learn as you go, I think. So I think having being likable, being approachable would be one thing that people will understand you're evolving in it. Um, I think the people will be loyal to you if you if they think that you have their back and if they think that you're representing them well. So I, I try to learn as I go. There are courses. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have courses at work. Um, I have good mentors. I'm surrounded by good leaders as well. Um, you know, throughout my, even before I was in a leadership role, I had some good people that I could model myself on and I, I learned from them as I went along. I'm not a big reader. I don't have time sitting in front of a computer for most of the day. So I tend to read, um, you know, I listen to short summaries while I run or um, whether that's on Blinkist or I subscribe to a few daily emails like the Harvard Business Review Management Tip of the Day, which helps me. It's, it's bite-sized, but it makes me think about it. Um, I have a leadership and life coach, which definitely something I find very useful when I have um, an issue where I'm struggling with something myself to, to be able to talk to somebody. And then conversing with peers. I'm having this issue. What do you think about it? How would you approach this? Um, as well as somebody senior who's gone through the experience. Because as, as, as I said, we're learning as we go. But other people may have been in that experience already. And having those sounding boards really, really helps. You were, you were talking once before on when we were setting up some programs about the, you know, the distinction you make in your mind between leadership and management. Could you unpack that a bit for our listeners? Sure. Oh, I'm not sure I'm an expert on this. I, I see management as a bit more of day-to-day as going through the motions of keeping everything rolling. I think leaders um, try to take, I want to say, more of a idealistic view, a future view, a future view, a future proofing, leading a culture change. Um, it's not. It's more of an action than just a state of or position. So you know, you can be in a position of leadership, but leadership is an ongoing action that you have to continue to do. Um, it's not just one thing. So. I guess it's you can lead you can be in a position of leadership on an idea a project um, you can be in a position of leadership in your family you can be in a position of leadership in any community um, it's the continuum of working of it I think management to me just make just seems to be to be keeping something running whereas leadership is actually paving the way forward or getting us out of a crisis which we may have been 
also. That's where real leadership comes in. Alex, you talked about the benefits of virtual working. How has it been being a leader, making the transition from seeing people face-to-face, moving to virtual and, and only being able to communicate with your team virtually? Way harder, I'll be honest. You don't see people to the same degree, so you have to make much more of an effort than you would have otherwise. You forget that you see people in the corridor, you can say hello. Um, I'm not great at this, and I'm the first person to admit it. I think I could do a better job of reaching out to the team. Um, tend to go to the people um, that I work with the most more frequently and then join team meetings. But I've started this year to try and drop in on people, colleagues and that, just to send it, you know, it's just call them on Zoom or pick up the phone and call um, and just make an effort of just writing a list of a few people to contact every week that I may not have seen regularly, that you might not come across in regular Zooms. It definitely takes a lot more work um, and I think you have to be much more conscious about it. Um, visiting people, you know, seeing people face to face, you see them in the elevator, you see them at the coffee shop and the like. But I think with Zoom, one thing is, even if you work in the same city now, it's the same as if somebody works in another country. So it actually is a good thing. To, it's a good discipline that you can actually enact to dealing across different cities, different countries, just different time zones even. I think that's a really killer point for anyone listening. The, the business about... Uh, creating opportunities for conversations with people, even if you may not have anything particularly pressing or professional to talk about, but you are maintaining those really essential links so that if the pressure does come on or, you you know, people unbeknown to you are um, ailing a bit in the circumstances or they've got some private worries, they wouldn't necessarily phone you up and share with you. You're kind of... uh, in a sense, you're reducing the bar for those types of conversations. And I think that's a really powerful tool. But it does take a lot of time, doesn't it? It does. I, th- I think there's probably a point here about being vulnerable, which is something that we we didn't really grow up thinking about, particularly in my industry. It wasn't something that we really, when I was growing up through the business, never really saw that about people. But it's really changed. I was lucky. You know, I talked about role models before and people and mentors around me. I was re- really lucky to have an amazing dad. Uh, and my father was fantastic. He was he was um, a professor, but very very humble. And I learned of I thought growing up that that was um, a weakness. And I grew up as I got older to think that's much more of a strength. To be that humility can be a real strength. And I look at vulnerability the same way. You know, I was on the phone with somebody in London um, who lives alone and was really struggling in lockdown. And she said, "I'm really struggling to get going. It's really hard work." And I said, "You know what? I'm actually having a hard time today." going through and motivating myself today. And she said, oh, really? I didn't expect that. I said, well, yeah, everybody has these challenges. She said, oh, it makes me feel better that to know that, you know, you're going through this as well. Because as a leader, often we put on that happy face, we put on that motivational um, can-do attitude, or at least we express ourselves that way, but we struggle as well. And we have to get up in the morning and face the same challenges that other people do. It's okay, to, I think, to sometimes show that. And I think you get respect for actually showing that vulnerability. It's interesting, though, that that's a starkly different approach from when I was growing up, you know, 30-plus uh, years ago. What's changed? Is it just a shift in society that's made um, expressing vulnerability more acceptable? Probably. It's probably just evolved, I think, the definition of it. Um, probably some leaders out there. Don't ask me to quote one now, but I think the, the style of leadership that we've looked up to has been one of, you know, people can show some emotion there. They can be vulnerable. And I think people, I think it's good for longevity to be your true self when you go to work as well. 
and be vulnerable, be honest about yourself and who you are. I think that's okay. I think that's a good thing. That speaks to longevity in a role, leadership or as an employee. I think it's easier for people to trust you if you are being yourself. I think people can very easily, or lots of people can very easily see through a sort of facade if you're trying to be something that you're not. And, and you know, it goes to the heart of the whole relationship. Alex, you are the, the HSBC Global Co-Head of ESG Sales. Can you tell us what ESG is? Sure. Um, basically, in a nutshell, sustainability. So environmental, social and governance, um, which has risen massively over the last um, year, really, um, from Larry Fink's letter at the start of last year at BlackRock to bushfires. Everyone is talking about climate change now. And thankfully, um, the, I don't want to be political here, but the the new US president is also very high on his agenda, uh, climate change. So it's a global crisis. I talk about global crisis as uniting people, whether that's the pandemic, which actually really brought ESG to, to the surface. It's doing the right thing for the long term, is what I would say is in, a, in a nutshell what sustainability is. So whether that's... Um, investing with impact to using these types of considerations in the way people invest. It's critically important, I think, that we consider the environment, that we consider social needs, and we're doing it the right way through governance, um, that we consider this. And it's a way of investing, it's a lens by which fund managers can you know, invest or divest from their portfolio. Uh, and it's a way that we as investors as well, look at it, look at the world and do some good. What's the, the role of leaders and promoting kind of sustainability or, or just ethics in general, strong ethics? Well, I'd like to think that I, well, I shouldn't say this, but this way, but I was a, I was not an environmentalist by any means, not to say I didn't care, but in a bad way, just wasn't high on my agenda. But I think that's why I think when people who aren't particularly environmentalist or don't will recognize the masses recognize that this is an issue that's when you go real culture change. And I, I pay a lot of, I give a lot of credit to the people that have toiled over this subject for a really long time. But now it's time from, it's moving now from niche to norm and everybody needs to talk this language. And that's the role of every leader to be able to talk about this in everything that we do. It's not off to the side anymore. And hey, they got, these guys have got it worked out. They're sitting in a corner of the room and they can look after it. It's a responsibility that we all have now. And that responsibility is something that we need to weave into everything that we do not just park it in the corner. So it's come, it's becoming mainstream and we need to make sure it stays there is what you're saying. 100%. Has it been a difficult journey from, you know, in a commercial sense no. to do that or do people get it? They get it now. I, I was fortunate. I came to this about 15 months ago. Um, so the, to be honest, the heavy lifting, a lot of the heavy lifting have been done. Um, I'm riding the crest of the wave and I said, uh, you know, certainly a lot of people want to talk about this now. I joke that one of my colleagues who's been pushing the green bond agenda in this region um, for a long time and we used to organise conferences with him and he used to get the graveyards, the, the graveyard shift, the four o'clock slot on the second afternoon when the room was half empty. You know, he used to get that slot on to talk about green bonds. He's gone from the graveyard shift to the main event. Everybody wants to hear about him. So he's really done the hard yards. I've I've been there to really ride the crest of the wave, but I think this is a this is a thematic that's here to stay. Leaders, it's about doing the right thing, and actually, it gives us a sense of purpose. A lot of what we do, you go through the motions sometimes. It feels like it. it don't, I don't know how we we have a bigger impact in the world, but this certainly is something that really resonates with 
what we're doing for our, for our future, for our kids' future, um, without saying too cliched. It's a good thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Do you think this is, be, this is a sort of groundswell that's come from the next generation, from uh, the younger cohort and, uh, you know, the, the, the middle to senior leaderships had to sort of assimilate that? Or do you think uh, that's a sort of uh, a misrepresentation? There's some truth to it. I'll be frank. It's a good thing. I, th I think that the younger generation certainly have invested that way. There's data to show that you know the millennials are much more um, sustainability focused in the way they in the way they live their lives. In the because that's not it's not all about investing. It's the way they live all their lives. Whether they care about their carbon footprint, whether the kinds of cars they drive, holding us accountable to that. I think leaders need to enable that. Need to listen to that groundswell and actually learn from it. And I, I'm pleased to say I think most people are not just because there's commercial benefits to it, but because it's also the right thing to do for the long term. So if we took that point and sort of amplified it into an organisation, uh, if you're a leader, how important is it to be listening to the sentiment, to the mood of the people who sit um, effectively beneath you in the structure of the organisation? Is that, or is it your job to shape that? Which is it? Are you listening to it or are you shaping it? Both. I think you have to do both. I don't think anyone's going to follow you if you're not listening to them. And um, I forgot who said it. Some leadership expert once said, um, you can judge the success of a leader by how many followers they have. Followers they have. I'm not sure I 100% buy into that, but there is some truth about that. Who wants to follow a leader that doesn't listen to them? Who feels loyal to that? I think you have to listen to them, but then you also have to shape and forge forward with that. It may You may not agree with all of it, but your opinions can be shaped by it and you have to certainly listen to what is happening because uh, the more senior you become, the further you get away from the, the real active of what's happening. And these people on the are on the front lines. We I've been on the front lines. You've been on the front lines. If you get further and further removed from that, then you lose a sense of what matters. And listening to people is, is probably the first thing. I was, one of the first things that a good leader must do, I think. I mean, it's certainly a, a popular view that the more senior in an organisation you become, the more of your time should be spent listening rather than telling people or talking to people. Um, As a colleague told me that you have two ears and one mouth, use them in proportion. Um, I think there's some truth to that. How difficult is it to listen to people? Or is it something, is it something that you, you do naturally or is it something that you have to kind of remind yourself to do? I don't find it hard to listen. Well, I've been accused of having ADD, but uh, it's not so much the listening part. It's the not becoming defensive and responding to some things that you may not agree with. I think that's a challenge. You don't want to. You need to take it all on and then walk away and I guess sift through it uh, and sort of not be uh, not be emotional about it at the time. I think that's important. Um, and creating a safe space for people to tell you honestly what it's about. You're working in pretty diverse teams you talked about that earlier on so how do you go about getting the best ideas from an array of people of different ages genders cultures and particularly at the moment who you can't sort of sit in the same room with it's hard it's hard i asked the team a few weeks ago i said at the start of the year i said look if there's can you give me and i went to one of the team meetings and i want to do this more uh, more regularly, but said if there's three things you wanted to change to help grow our business going forward, 
let us know. You know, no obligation. We're not, I'm not going to judge you on whether you submit them or not. It's optional. And give me three challenges that you'd like us to try and break down for you. Because I, I see clearing the way as one of my responsibilities as well as a leader. If there's something that's a pain point, I want to know about it. I'm, I want to listen to it because it's a pain point. It might be a pain point for me. It might be a pain point for the other people on the team. We can try and clear that. So I'm trying this new um, technique this year and I'm going to try and compile it. I don't. I said I was very open and I said, look, I'm not, I don't expect to get to be able to tackle them all or be able to solve them all, but I'm listening. I know that I'll try and solve the big ones and try and, and maybe we've already got solutions to some of the small ones, but we just haven't pop, we just haven't um, circulated them well enough or talked about them enough. Um, that'd be one way of listening. It's hard when you're not doing it socially um, in a face-to-face environment. People are much more open and face-to-face, I think, uh, physically. You can take, you know, go out for lunch with somebody and they'll tell you what the, how they really feel. I think relationships, I'm going a slight tangent here, but relationships can be maintained very well over Zoom, but they're hard to forge on Zoom. So um, I think it's easy for the people that you know well to check in regularly, but it takes more work and maybe more being more vulnerable or mean, being more um, consistent in, in that communication in order to build that. Well, I'm interested in that uh, that request you put to your team, you know, for challenges and opportunities because you know we done quite a bit of work last year with uh, with some um, help from a, a, a social psychologist um, looking at the benefits of diversity and how you really harness them. And there's a lot of evidence that um, you know there are people who are perhaps perhaps harboring or um having um distinctly different ideas from the sort of core norm of a team of say 10 people but if the the sort of emotional barrier to getting their um ideas over and the risk of them being seen as a sort of outsider or out of step or too controversial if that emotional barrier is too high you won't get the benefit of their thinking and of course it's always the leader's job to uh what's up not own, not exclusively the leader, but primarily the leader's job to get the best out of uh, the minds in the team. It is, and it's also that there's different, you, you mentioned diversity, um, but diverse ages, diverse backgrounds, and diverse experience. So, you know, me talking about technology as a mid-40s person is probably, I'm probably not on the cutting edge of what's possible, you know, as I talk about streamlining and making our processes more efficient. Perhaps somebody in the team that's younger or worked with, an, with a technology background has a better idea. Um, I, I wouldn't, you know, I'd be wrong if I didn't listen to that. So I'm trying to create a safe space um, and, you know, the ability to try and do that. And I think there's more work to be done there, particularly in this virtual environment. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's an absolute privilege to talk to you in the evening in Hong Kong, where you are now. Uh, we very much look forward to being able to meet up at some point. But thank you so much from us both for being part of the Amicus Leadership Podcast and giving us your innermost thoughts on leadership. And thanks so much for having me, Peter, Jennifer. It was an honour on my side. Thanks. thanks very much. Be well. Thanks for listening. We do hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget that you can find each new episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and remember to subscribe so you don't miss out. At Amicus, our bread and butter is helping leaders create consistent results by bringing out the best in their people. 
If you need support with anything we talked about on this episode, you can find out more about us at amiclimited.com. This podcast has been done in conjunction with Inkblot Creative. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.